Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up, features books from 60 literary publishers. And now U.S. readers can chop All Lit Up close to home and save on shipping when they purchase books from its new bookshop.org affiliate shop. Browse selected titles at bookshop.org slash shop slash All Lit Up. All Lit Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. Check out All It Up at www.allitup.ca. That's A-L-L-L-I-T-U-P dot C-A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Leslie Sign's unforgettable debut poetry collection, Have You Been Long Enough at Table?, Called Marvelous by Terence Hayes, these poems explore the personal and historical tragedies of the Cuban-American experience through a distinctly feminine lens. Through lyric and associative meditations, Signs anatomizes the unique grief of immigrant daughters as her speakers discover how family can be a microcosm of the very violence that displaced them. Says Zaina Hashem Beck, this book asks questions that resist simple answers, all the while giving us moments of tenderness. Have You Been Long Enough at Table is available now from Tin House. And I'll just add to that promo that Leslie's appearance on Poetry Off the Shelf is just fabulous. The episode, The Fact of the Suitcase. Today's conversation with the singular and iconic Lydia Davis is about her new story collection, Our Strangers, a collection of 143 stories that are sometimes as short as their titles and sometimes as long as a quote-unquote normal short story. But either way, they always seem to conjure the questions, what is a story? Is this a story? And if it isn't, what is it? Today's conversation is, of course, a fiction conversation, a conversation about narrative and storytelling, but it is equally a poetry conversation, and deeply so. And perhaps like no other conversation, it is a fiction conversation, a poetry conversation, a nonfiction conversation, and a translation conversation. While always talking about her latest stories, which are often engaging directly with language and communication, and which are often composting lived experience and found materials into our fictional pieces. Our Strangers is the first book in Bookshop.org's new publishing venture, Bookshop Editions, which arose due to Davis's desire to publish this book in a way that bypassed Amazon. And we discuss this and other ways she is engaged politically in her life and how these ways do and don't find themselves into her stories. The two main books of Lydia's I put in conversation with our strangers are her last two, her two books of nonfiction, 
Essays 1 and Essays 2, which offer a wealth of insight about writing and about translating, respectively, and shed light on what her deliberations and sensibilities are when crafting and shaping the stories within her collections. For the bonus audio archive, Lydia contributes a reading of one of her translations of the Swiss author Peter Bichsel, who writes in German. First, she talks about what attracts her to his writing, how she encountered it, and then she reads a story of his that she translated that echoes her own journey in Germany at the time. This joins an ever-growing wealth of materials in the bonus audio archive including lots of long-form conversations with translators themselves. Two conversations with Megan McDowell discussing Mariana Enriquez and Alejandro Zambra, Beverly B. Brahic, the translator of Alain Siksu, Ellen Elias Bursich, the translator of Dubrovka Ugresic, Kurt Beals, the translator of Jenny Erpenbeck, and occasionally a guest who, like Lydia, is also a translator themselves, does something translation-oriented for the archive, too. Rosemary Waldrop reading her translation of a piece by Edmond Jabez, or Arthur Z reading four translations from four different eras of Chinese poetry and history and talking about how translating a given era of poetry helped him move into a new phase in his own poems when he knew he needed to, but didn't know how to before the translations. This is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode where I share the materials I discovered and used to prepare. I give links to things referenced during the conversation and things to explore once you're done listening. And there's much, much more to choose from, all of which can be checked out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Lydia Davis. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is short story writer, translator, novelist, essayist, and some would say poet, Lydia Davis. She studied at Barnard College, was professor of literature at Bard College, and later professor of English 
at the State University of New York, Albany, where she is now Professor Emerita. Her many translations include Proust's Swan's Way, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, and Maurice Blanchot's The Gaze of Orpheus and other literary essays. And she's the recipient of the Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters from the French government for her fiction and translations. Davis is the author of many short story collections, including the National Book Award finalist Varieties of Disturbance, Almost No Memory, Break It Down, and Can't and Won't. She's a recipient of a Whiting Award for her fiction, a Man Booker International Prize for Achievement in Fiction, and the Penn Malamute Award for Excellence in the Short Story. She's been bestowed with a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lannan Literary Prize, and the MacArthur Fellowship, otherwise known as the Genius Grant, and is known as the great exemplar along with Diane Williams of the short fictional form. The MacArthur Award citation said, For Davis, restraint represents a platform for taking risks. The critic William Skidelsky said Davis redefines the meaning of brevity, and the Man Booker jury said her work had the brevity and precision of poetry. The panel chair, Christopher Ricks, added, there is vigilance to her stories and great imaginative attention, vigilance as how to realize things down to the very word or syllable, vigilance as to everybody's impure motives and illusions of feeling. Lydia Davis is one of the rare contemporary authors whose work has appeared in both the Best American Short Stories and Best American Poetry, short stories of hers appearing in Best American Poetry 1999, 2001, and 2008. Her fiction has appeared widely everywhere from The New Yorker to McSweeney's, Tin House to Conjunctions to Noon. In 2019, Davis published her first book of nonfiction, The Remarkable Essays One, a gathering of essays, commentaries, and lectures written over the past five decades, and of which Parole Segal said in the New York Times, Davis is our Vermeer, patiently observing and chronicling daily life, but from angles, odd, and askew. Essays One allows us backstage into the creation and revision of her stories and her notes on her influences. Essays One was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and followed by Essays Two, her essays on translation of which Philip Lopez says, we come away from Essays Two with renewed respect for a writer whose grasp of languages is profound and whose capacity to shapeshift from one to another is quite exceptional. And Cornelia Channing adds, while writing about writing can sometimes wander into theoretical navel-gazing territory, Davis's approach here is thrillingly concrete. Several pieces describe in vivid granular detail her process for translating the first volume of Proust. She pops the hood and lets us see how the literary gears turn. We're lucky to have Lydia Davis here today to talk about her latest book, her story collection, Our Strangers, a book of 143 stories told in a wide range of voices and literary forms. Our Strangers is the inaugural title in Bookshop.org's new publishing imprint, Bookshop Editions. As a result of Lydia looking for a means to publish and distribute this new book in a way that bypasses Amazon, where Our Strangers will be found in 
physical stores, independent booksellers, and at bookshop.org. Kirkus, in its starred review, calls it an overflowing treasure chest of jewel-like stories, a collection you'll want to keep on your bedside table by one of America's most original short story writers. And speaking about Davis's fiction more broadly, Colm Tobin says, Davis is brilliant. She captures words as a hunter might and uses punctuation like a trap. Davis is a high priestess of the startling telling detail, a most original and daring mind. And Allie Smith says for The Guardian, This is a writer as mighty as Kafka, as subtle as Flaubert, and as epic-making in her own way as Proust. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lydia Davis. Hello, pleased to be here. Well, I wanted to start with form. In Essays 1, you talk about your history with the short story form, that both your parents were writers and teachers, that both had stories published in The New Yorker, and that publishing in The New Yorker became a sort of pole star almost by default, that in college you thought your writing choices were limited, either poetry or prose. And if you chose prose, then the choice was either novel or short story. But once you'd chosen short stories, it was the normative form of the short story that would be written. And when you've looked back at your early traditional stories now, you, you've said that they seem like Hemingway influence pieces. But once you encountered other ways of writing, whether Beckett or Bernhard, you started removing many things associated with the form. And I would like to spend some time with many of the effects of brevity. But before we do, I wanted to begin with one of your pieces of advice in your 30 recommendations for good writing habits. One of those recommendations is don't provide a lot of context, explanation, or exposition. Saying less is more. And I think this is true about your writing, whether you are writing a one-sentence story or a 20 to 30-page story, both of which appear in Our Strangers. And of course, backstory, exposition, context, interior psychological characterization are all common features of many short stories. So talk to us about why doing less of this is better for you personally as a writer and also why you might put this forth as writerly advice for others. Well, it's tough because I do think each person chooses his or her own way to write. I wouldn't really want to say there is only one way and that one shouldn't do this and should do that. That's really not going to work for most situations. So I can contradict some of what I said and and, and say that traditional short stories with all the trappings, you know, the introduction, the setting, the characterization, the dialogue, the denouement, and the conclusion that work beautifully for many writers in many situations. But I don't think it should become an ironclad form that one has to follow to write a successful short story. I think what I meant even more was sentence to sentence, Often people over-explain, over-contextualize, that you can cut away a lot of that and keep keep the surprise from one sentence to the next. And I do that in my own revision. I can 
I can go to sentence number two and say, oh, I, I seem to repeat a little obvious information here, or I seem to give some obvious information that I don't have to give. And my tendency really when reading other people's work, I'm often perfectly satisfied with it, but when I want to revise someone else's work, it's often in the direction of cutting. You know, if only they hadn't used all those adjectives, or if only they had, you know, given us one sentence less. It's hard. People love to talk and they love to write. Once they start writing, they love to write. So write all you want to the first draft, but then get a little more rigorous in the next draft, I guess. Well, when you talk to Francine Prose for Bomb Magazine 25 years ago now, you, you talked about living in France after college and having trouble with the traditional story form. There was one long story that you were working on endlessly that took over two years to finish with many failed versions, but that you started doing very short stories at the same time to break yourself out of out of this sort of rut of not writing or resisting writing. You, you set up a goal at the time of writing two tiny stories every day. No matter how silly they were, you said you had to finish two one-paragraph stories a day. Fast forward two decades, and you are translating Proust's Swan's Way and the long sentences of Proust with the nested clauses, and you decide while you're immersed in the complex syntax and ongoing thought of Proust's prose to try a new form in a similar spirit, I think, asking yourself, how short can I make a piece of my own writing and still have it mean something? And what's so interesting about both of these exercises to me and about removing what most people expect to find within a form is that it also conjures the form that one expects in one's mind and becomes, at the same time, something else entirely. Perhaps in the same way that your two-paragraph-long stories per day were written alongside your impossible-to-finish traditional story and your challenge to write as short as possible, living alongside your translation of Proust's very long sentences. When we read your super-short stories, I think it calls into question what makes the form the form in the first place? Is this still a story? If so, how? And if not, what is it? When you depart this far from the traditional short story, do you still feel in some ways that you are in conversation with it nevertheless? And if you don't, where does, where does the impulse to depart in this way from it uh, come from? A lot of it for me has to do with where I start. So I definitely started from the short story and, and I feel that's my home territory way back, as you say, in, in college and just after. So when I was in my early 20s into mid 20s. So that's why coming from there, I might end up writing something that looks like a poem, but I would never call myself a poet. I didn't start there. I started definitely a story writer and storyteller, even though the, the form keeps changing. The long story you talk about that I kept working on, it was a good practice story for me in in France. And it, it turned out all right, because I just kept at it. So it, it is a proper story, whose title, of course, I'm forgetting. I did put that aside. I didn't actually go on working on that. 
when I started writing the, the very short stories. I really put it aside and that felt very exciting and fresh. It felt that I'd been released from bondage and uh, allowed to fly. <laughs> and the reason I forced myself to do two a day is you, you do sometimes have to force yourself to write at all and write in a certain way. And also forcing meant that I couldn't sort of mull over what was a good subject, whether a subject was worth writing about, whether, you know, how I was going to approach it. You know, I couldn't begin to sort of criticize it in advance. I just had to go ahead and start. One that grew actually started with a, with a sentence, something like, last night my aunt burned to death, or last year my aunt burned to death or something. I can't remember it now. But I, I'm sure that was one of the one of the beginnings that I forced myself, just, okay, think of something and then see where it goes from there. So to me, there's still stories. And they were inspired, I should say, by Russell Edson. He was the immediate instigator in the sense of he wasn't awesomely up on a pedestal the way I think Kafka was for me. He also wrote very short stories, parables and paradoxes. But he was sort of beyond reach. Well, you, how can you possibly do what Kafka does or, or even emulate him? For some reason, it didn't occur to me. But Russell Edson was more fallible. He would write a story that was silly. It didn't work. It was, it was I won't say stupid. None of them were stupid, but silly. And um, just didn't, didn't make it at all. And then another that was, was devastating, that was sort of the same sort of thing, but devastating. So he gave me a, a way in, the way a B-movie sometimes shows you how movies are made and, and why brilliant movies are brilliant. Not that he was a B-writer, but, but there were B-stories. And I thought, wow, he's, he's a, he was also sort of transgressive. You know, for me, he was writing about dead daughter this and dead daughter that. We're, we're going to have dead daughter for dinner. You know, just weird and crazy and highly emotional things. So that also freed me up. Okay, I'll just write about anything I want and just make myself free my imagination and my my emotions. So that's why it was so liberating. I was not trying to fit into a form with appropriate subject matter and so on. I was just doing what I wanted to do. And it also set an example for me going forward of just no matter what the form was, doing what I wanted to do rather than doing what I thought it should do. Mm. And I think that's very important. In essays one, you, you mention many examples of brevity that you were attracted to. You've mentioned Edson but and also Kafka's diary entries, but also Babel and Grace Paley's stories of only a couple pages. And you also point us to, which I didn't know about, Thomas Bernhardt having who's so well known for his uninterrupted language, not even having paragraph breaks in his books, um, that he has a book, uh, the voice imitator of these tiny paragraph long stories that you love. And you also discuss a daily exercise of describing something that happened to you in a given day in three short sentences, which perhaps was partly inspired by Felix Fenion's novels in three lines, which I adore. Um, as part of talking about the exercise you did with Proust, 
and as part of talking more about brevity, maybe we could first hear two examples from our strangers. And I was hoping we could hear Lonely Canned Ham and Wistful Spinster. Lonely, parenthesis, canned ham. The thin little old woman goes timidly into a shop on the day before Thanksgiving. She asks, do you have a canned ham? Wistful spinster. What is that? Touching her so lightly in the bath as she lies back in the warm water. Ah, a floating bookmark. So I think one thing we notice right away is with these really short stories, a heightened importance of the titles, they become an important part of the piece. The The words lonely in the first one and the word wistful, neither of which appear in the respective stories, I think they do a lot of work because the timid old woman shopping for Thanksgiving the day before and buying a canned ham might suggest loneliness as one of several possibilities. But being oriented that way in the title allows us to flesh out the scene in a mood of loneliness, perhaps in a similar way to reading the title or caption beside a more abstract painting might. Um, it also puts a lot more pressure on word choice and sentence structure. When I talked to Diane Williams for the show, your great peer in this forum, I think, I mentioned that an interviewer asked if the sentence could be overemphasized. And she said, the sentence cannot be overemphasized. Neither can a fragment of a sentence or a syllable of a word. The writer either exploits the language for maximum effects or she does not. Missed opportunities are there regardless. And I was curious if that was a sentiment you share. And also, maybe this would be a good time to talk about the experiment you did around Proust, which seems to be an experiment of really placing this added weight or pressure on language through constraint and brevity. But if you could speak to um, that exercise in relationship, perhaps to the poems, we just, the poems in relationship. <laughs> Actually, I don't mind Eric being called poems. I just don't want to pose as a poet. <laughs> yes. A non-poet writing. <laughs> well, first about the title Titles they're they're very they're very important obviously they're vital because I don't want to in a way clutter up or weigh down the text itself with extra explanation sorts of things and there's a great weight on the title speaking of weight it stands by itself off the top of the text and it's it's sort of an intermediary I didn't really start thinking about all this till I wrote these very, very short ones. It's sort of an intermediary between the text and the reader. It's sort of, it's sort of the announcer. It says, okay, here's what's coming. And it's not exactly the same in the same voice as the text. So it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, and, and some titles are are very straightforward and plain, like War and Peace. You know, this is a book about war and peace. But it's still in that middle intermediate space. So with some of my very short pieces, 
the text is already there. I don't have to do a lot of revision. With some I do, but with some I don't. They're already there and there's no more to be done. So then my revision effort or writing effort is in just how to, to write the title. You know, even the parenthesis, lonely and then canned ham in parenthesis. Well, the words canned ham, I guess you go back to what Diane Williams said, because it's the syllables, it's the assonance there mm-hmm. that partly interests me. Canned ham, it's very, ah, ah. And, um, <laughs> kind of pounding, pounding. And it's also kind of funny. I mean, the poem isn't funny, but lonely by itself would be a little more full of pathos. But then when you put in the parenthesis, you, you're pretending this, whoever this intermediate voice is, is, is pretending to explain further what she means by lonely. Uh, lonely, by which I mean canned ham, or which has to do with canned ham, is sort of <laughs> funny, even though the situation isn't so funny. But canned ham maybe in itself is funny. So it's already there in the piece. It's somehow comical. Even if even if you had a large family gathering at Thanksgiving and, and the host or the hostess said, oh, we're having a canned ham. Well, that would be funny, too, because it's sort of the opposite of what you associate with Thanksgiving dinner. And the, the titles, they do all function slightly differently. So Wistful Spinster is a little different. It sort of just sets you up to to think, okay, here's, a, here's a, again, lonely. Here's a woman who, who wishes she, you know, I use the sort of old-fashioned word spinster. We don't talk about spinsters at all anymore, but it has the associations of what it used to mean. Spinster is seen as a, as a woman alone who wishes she weren't alone. And so then you add Wistful. And so that sets it up. That one I probably did more re- revising in the body of so-called the body of the piece. I think I didn't quite understand the quote from from Diane, but if she means that every syllable is vital, I agree with that. Strangely, though, the the longer the piece gets, the slightly less vital it gets. I mean, it's still it's still um, important, but you you could write. I'm thinking of, say, early 20th century books, huge novels. I probably have the wrong examples, but I'm thinking of books like McTeague or sort of huge American classics that aren't actually that well written. They're a bit sloppy, but in a book of overwhelming sort of scope and character and drama and political message, the sloppiness just doesn't matter that much. So in those cases, I don't think every syllable matters. But when you get down to the level of Diane's stories, which are never hugely long and certainly never sloppy, or or my shorter ones, then it 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 matters mu- much more. It's very vital. Well, Elisa Gabbard, the poetry editor for the New York Times, and also a past between the covers guest, she had a recent article called can a poem be too short, which meditates on this question in relation to the release of a new anthology called Little Poems that looks at short poems from antiquity onward. And I wanted to read something of what she said. 
quote, I remember where I was when I first read two short poems. One, Margaret Atwood's You Fit Into Me. You fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye, was in my 10th grade English textbook. My own eye latched onto this four-line poem in the middle of class because it was so short, which made it seem larger than the others, like the large print text in Dr. Seuss, almost easier to read than not to read. It's a poem designed to make you gasp, and I did. The second was Folk Poem, P-H-O-L-K Poem, by Bill Knott. I hadn't heard of Knott before I signed up for this workshop, my first year of graduate school. I took out a collection from the library and read it in an afternoon in the crappy one-bedroom near campus another student called my hovel. Not wrote many memorable short poems, but this is the one that managed to blow my mind. The soup is lumpy. Well then, pour it out. The soup is lumpy. Well, pour it out then. The soup is lumpy. The potato soup. The fishhook poem had done its work and can do no more on me. I will not gasp again, but the potato soup poem retains about it something inexplicable. Why did it strike me? I think I had not yet encountered an anti-poem, a poem so shocking in its pointlessness. How dare it be printed? How dare it exist? And why do I still find it funny? It's something in the fifth line. When I haven't read it recently, I think of it as having four, something that happens between the exclamation point and the final variation on the repetition as though the poem were already exasperated by itself. It seems to trail off muttering, embarrassed. And I read all of this both because Gabbert's sense that Atwood's poems seem larger than the other poems she knew because it was so short, and that Knott's poem remains unforgettable for, for many possible reasons. It's funny, it's pointless, it's pointlessly funny, it's surprising, it's everything it shouldn't be. And I wonder if this sparks any thoughts for you, but I also wonder how, if at all, you do see your work in relation to poetry. I know when you were at the Kelly Writer's House for a poem talk with Alf Fielris, that he considered you among the poets and kept slipping up and calling your collected stories collected poems the way I slipped up earlier. And I wondered how you felt about this framing, if, if there was a meaningful distinction for you around your shorter pieces and um, they're longer pieces I don't think people would mistake as poems and whether that distinction is important or whether you welcome the slippage uh, and then I also lastly I, it just made me the not poem made me think of your writing about the three-line finished poem that you say continues to move and mystify you 30 years later a, a poem that you keep on your bulletin board where you say, in, in 16 words, it conveys so many contradictory emotions, pathos and humor, absurdity and seriousness, frank and earnest statement, and obviously fictive storytelling. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about poetry in relationship to your prose. Well, actually, I'm staring at my bulletin board and staring at the poem you mentioned. Shall I read it? I would love it if you did, yeah. Okay. So funny, I've changed the things on my bulletin board quite a lot, but not this one. It's an incredibly yellowed old postcard. 
it's a translation by Anselm Hollow from something called the Cheremis, and I've never quite understood. I think that's like a gathering of folk poems or literature. And it it does sort of define for me what what a good poem can do. And, and it and it does sort of answer the question about can a poem be too short in the sense that a, a good poem can be as short as it wants to be, not too short. A bad poem can be as long as it wants to be, and it doesn't make it any better. And it doesn't make it good when it's a bad short poem. And I think what what you quoted the what was her name? I'm sorry that I can't. Uh, Lisa Gabbard. Gabbard. What she said was what I would agree with that the the Atwood poem is over in a second. It's sensational. And it doesn't give you all that much afterwards. The other I I I don't quite agree that it would keep giving giving me, but I'd have to hear it a few more times and think about it. But I think it, there's more going on there than in the Atwood poem. And that can be a big problem with, I've, I've looked through anthologies of very short stories or very short poems. A lot of them are sort of one-liners or, you know, quickly, quickly over or depending on sensationalism or cuteness or, you know, there are many dangers you can run with a short piece. But anyway, having said all that, I'll read this one from the Cheremis, translated by Anselm Hollow, who's a poet himself. Three lines. I shouldn't have started these red wool mittens. They're done now, but my life is over. And I think the reason that I can keep reading that is, I mean, I have I've written about the effect of it, but it starts in such an ordinary way. You know, a lot of people say, I shouldn't have started this, whatever, jigsaw puzzle, uh, quilting project, uh, you know, this casserole, you know, there are a lot of things we shouldn't have started. And then they're done now. So, okay, he finally finished them. But, but so why doesn't he feel, or she, I think of it as a he just because Anselm Hollow translated it, but that's not relevant. Um, they're done now comma, but my life is over. So that just hits you over the head. And I can keep reading it, even though I know the end, because there's somehow still, there's still the hopefulness or the matter-of-factness of the first two lines. Um, that I shouldn't have started this casserole. It's done now, but I'm terribly late for the place I was going. And, but but my life is over is so... And I, I actually wrote, I wrote something that imitates that slightly but i'm not sure i'm ready to read it yet it, it's about learning german you know that i finally my german is better but i'm dead now <laughs> i'm <laughs> dying now but i and that's funny but it's also relates to an idea that's very moving to me but i think i'd rather talk about it a little later um so so that's what i have to say in response to the short poem problem you know, people often refer to Hemingway's short poem as the sort of classic example of, you know, for sale. I always quote it slightly wrong, but for sale, um, baby, baby shoes never worn or something. 
But that is like the Atwood poem. That's a one-shot thing, you know. Uh-oh, that's how sad about the David baby being gone. But it just seems to me too frontal and too obvious. And I just, I don't find it moving. So in response to your one part of your question, do I mind the confusion between poems and stories? I don't mind it. And I also think it's it's productive of very interesting conversations. What is a poem? What is a story? Where's the dividing line between a poem and a story? You know, when is a prose poem a prose poem rather than just a piece of prose uh, fiction? And and so on. You know, it's interesting to think about all this. Well, maybe this is the perfect time to hear your story, uh, The Obnoxious Man, which itself contains a poem inside of it. And then the story becomes a poem. Yeah, that was that was fun for that reason to rewrite the story within the story. Yeah, I love this story. That obnoxious man. That obnoxious man. I saw him on the train the other day and I knew who he was, but I couldn't remember his name. I kept thinking about him after that, trying to remember his name. He was so obnoxious long ago when I knew him. By now, his hair is white, but he still has that way of staring straight at you like a frightened rabbit with his eyes bugging out. I am on the train again today, and I wish he would get on. Then I would ask him what his name was. Maybe after that, I could stop thinking about him. The beginning of this, that obnoxious man, made me think of a poem by Loreen Niedeker. Or else it is the other way around, and it is because of the Lorene Niedeker poem that I say, that obnoxious man. Her poem goes, untitled, The Museum Man. I wish he'd taken Pa's spit box. I'm going to take that spit box out and bury it in the ground and put a stone on top. Because without that stone on top, it would come back. Actually, it probably worked both ways. I began the story with those words because somewhere in my memory, though I didn't know it, was the Niedeker poem. Then when I looked at my story, it reminded me of the poem. Now I might write it in a different way, more like her poem. That obnoxious man. I saw him on the train and I knew exactly who he was from long ago, but I couldn't remember his name. Oh, I wish he'd get on the train again so I could ask him his name. Then I could bury him and put a stone on top. And listening to Lydia Davis read from her new story collection, Our Strangers. So we have a question for you from a poet, a poet you've written about, a poet who's in your book club with you. Uh, two, oh. <laughs> two time passed between the covers guest, Ray Armentrout. Hi, Lydia. It's Ray Armentrout. I often find your stories wonderfully hilarious and serious at the same time. Looking through your book, Can't and Won't, I picked out Letter to a Frozen Pea Manufacturer. Right away, that title makes me laugh. Then the first sentence is, We are writing because we find the peas illustrated are of the most unattractive color. 
I don't know why I find that so funny. Maybe it's the use of the first person plural. Maybe it's the formal phrasing. It would be possible to think works like this are satirical, but that doesn't seem quite right. Would you talk about the role of absurdity and comedy in your writing? <laughs> That's very funny. Yes, my friend Ray, whose poetry I've been reading since early 1980s, I think, when I first met her. So comedy is always with me and absurdity, I guess, in, in my life. Obviously, I write a lot about my life, not about my life, but from my life, material from my life. And it's it's all around and gives me great pleasure, even in the midst of difficult things. Probably not the most difficult, but mildly difficult things, as the funny aspect of it will always be obvious to me and sometimes make it all right. I had a good friend years ago who has since died who similarly would tell me story after story and almost all of them with, oh, we laughed so hard. Oh, we had such a good time laughing. And they would be stories that were not fun to experience at the time, but she would find a, a humorous aspect. You know, if a friend was the first was collapsed on the floor and the firemen were trying to get to her to help revive her and, and my friend Vi would keep getting in the way to, in her distress to, to try to bend over her friend. And she said, oh, I, I kept getting in their way. And it was, it was so funny <laughs> because, because the friend did recover, so it was all right. It was funny by the end. You know, there are people who find see humor in, in things, and there are people who just tend not to see humor. And I, I'm very grateful that I do see humor in things and absurdity. And I suppose, as with the canned ham story, they, they're sort of side by side. You know, people, you, you observe strangers in grief, but something, there might be something funny going on at the same time. It's just there all the time. I don't really know without examples. It's easier for me to talk about examples, you know, specific stories, but that obnoxious man, there's there's humor is throughout for me, and maybe not much pathos because it's not a it's not a terribly serious or difficult situation. And neither is Lorreen Niedeker's, you know, pause spit box. Well, who, who knows? Her relationship with her father might be, might have been very fraught. Or the spit box was just something she hated when she was a kid. So, I don't know, humor is present in Ray Armentrout's poems also. I, I guess I also appreciate it, when it, when it whenever it's present, I appreciate it. Mm. It's we, just another dimension. For sure. You've said before about Beckett that his work is so closely accurate psychologically that it becomes absurd and moving at the same time and about Russell Edson that sometimes absurd subjects make it easier for difficult emotions to come forth and I think of you and your work as you describe the work of these two and I also realize that in our strangers I feel like a lot of the humor is a language or communication humor 
mistaken identities, like mistaking new things as if they're old things, new husbands as if they're old husbands, questions of misspellings, the word hemorrhaging, and the failures to spell it right, whether Gramsci is a, an Italian designer or an Italian Marxist, how the word fun is in English is also a Chinese noodle, <laughs> the, the presence or the absence of E in acknowledgement. Um, it feels like the humor of a writer and translator, of course, um, or at least the humor of someone attentive to the slippage between words and what they represent. And I also think many of these mishearings and misspellings and mistakes, they conjure something of what you say about translation in essays too, where you ask, can you say the same thing in radically different ways? And if you write it so radically different, are you in fact saying the same thing? But talk to us about this prominent through line in the book around your stories, stories that move based on miscommunication often in many ways. Yeah, well, it, it comes up obviously in translation. You know, that Madame Bovary had was translated. It, I know to keep, they probably keep adding, adding to the number, but there were like 21 or 22 translations into English of Madame Bovary. Wow. So each one was a little different. Some were radically different from each other. And I don't think you are saying quite the same thing when you when you reword it. I want to bring something in that may not quite fit this question. And I can't remember if I wrote about it in the in the essay books, but the the poetry of of Basho, Journey to the North is is it sometimes called. And I could say it was also an important influence in a sense, because one of my favorite books, and I know this was about 45 years ago, because I used to read it in the middle of the night when I was nursing my older son. So I can tell you it was about 45 years ago that I was reading it closely in the middle of the night in silence. And he, his journey to the north, he would, and there are several translations, I think also narrow road to the north or something. And I haven't really examined the different translations, but it was a narrative of the journey. He would write in prose about where he was going, what he was seeing, and then he would sort of stop the prose abruptly and write a three-line poem. I think it was, again, a three-line poem. I'm not sure it was always a haiku. It might have been. Uh, that would sort of sum up or refer to what he had been saying in prose. It was as if he was sort of reflecting and receiving the essence of what he had just been telling us in prose and then write it in a short poem. And I just found that absolutely delightful. Partly just what he was doing, how interesting it was, but also the alternation you're following along in prose narrative. And then you have this break, sudden break, and you go into a different mode and have this uh, three-line distilled poem. Then you go back to the prose. So you have the story, the journey, but also the poems. And I, I like that alternation very much. That makes me think of how many of the stories in this collection are in conversation with each other in some ways, either the various series in the poems, but also 
the title story, I think, is an expansion of an earlier version of a story that you'd published, and some stories are referring to other stories in, in the collection at the same time. Not exactly the same as the, what Basha is doing, but formally um, different forms in conversation. Yeah, I mean, some of them arise very naturally, like I think there's one called Revision or Revision 2 or Revision 3 or something. And that really just arose because I had made a list of all the changes that I wanted or needed to make in a in a story, either because I wanted to change what I'd written or someone else had got it wrong, say, in a galley or something. And I was proofreading. But then I read the list in itself, and I find it terrific. I, I like it. I like it because it's so slightly mysterious, but referring to so many disparate things. And I think disparate things interest me in the world, you know, things that collide by chance. So that kind of story about writing or about an act of writing, that arose naturally. And some, some like, let's see, commentary on interesting personal vegetables, that's a story about a story called Interesting Personal Vegetables. So I write the story, Interesting Personal Vegetables. And then I, I, after I've written it, I learn more about the context and about the backstory and so on. And rather than just change the original story, I think, well, that's another story. And I like that story too. And I think I think it's the first time this has happened, I think, I could be wrong, in a, in a book of mine mm. where I write a story that comments on another story. But I think I like breaking through the boundaries, you know, oh, no, you don't do that. You don't have a story that's, that's about another story. Traditionally, you could certainly have a story that continued another story, used the same characters and continued the story but this is more sort of about writing it sort of crosses over into essay territory and it's possible i hadn't thought of this before but it's possible that that it was because it was after the two books of essays that i had got into the mode of thinking in essay form or thinking in explanation form and so it sort of bled into the next book of stories well, in, in your recommendations for good writing habits, two more of them are to read poetry regularly, even if you only write prose, and to learn at least one foreign language. And I suspect at least one benefit of both of these practices, poetry and thinking and speaking in another language, is revealing the effect of syntax. Syntax is something that comes up often when you describe what you love about a writer. You describe Beckett as having impossibly tangled but correct syntax. You describe with admiration Bernhard's tiny stories as having a tight structure, a completeness, and a hyper-complex syntax. You describe in your essays the different effects a one-paragraph story would have versus the same story broken into multiple paragraphs, how each reflect a different thing about the speaker's state of mind. And you talk about the importance of knowing the concrete origin of abstract words, for instance, that 
the origin of the word ostracize comes from the word for pottery shards. Uh, lastly, you talk about the importance of knowing the history of English pre- and post-Norman conquest, which words are Anglo-Saxon in origin and which are Latinate. And I wonder if you could speak a little to syntax and etymology for us in terms of how it's influencing your fiction writing. Maybe an example comes to mind from the book or just more generally about the importance of these things, uh, in, including the origin, whether it's happening before the Romance language influence or not when, when writing. I did grow up in a household where my father was fascinated by word origins and etymologies and where the, the dictionary stood on a stand in the living room, lay on a stand. I don't know. I don't like the wording of stood on a stand. <laughs> lay on, lay open on a stand in the living room and he would often get up and go over and look up a word out of curiosity and report what he was finding. And my mother thought it was interesting too, although she didn't have the same habit. So, for example, when I first opened a checking account, I opened my first checking account, my father explained about endorsing a check. And he explained the the word etymology because he couldn't help it. So the word endorse has the word for back in it. So you turn over and write on the back, and that's what endorsing is. Oh, wow. And it's related to the dorsal fin of a of a shark or a dolphin. I think do, do dolphins have dorsal fins? I can't remember. But anyway, so for me, that constant reminder, well, of course, it implanted in my brain, but it it also reveals the the metaphorical aspect of of a regular word that that would be opaque to us if we didn't know that. Uh, an example being gregarious. Well, it's a, just a bunch of syllables if we don't know that it actually comes from the idea of a herd, you know, the Greek word for for herd of animals. So if you're gregarious, you like mingling with the herd. Um, and it brings it alive. It gives a lot more color to the language of so-called abstract words with their concrete origins. But it also um, allows you to, to use them more accurately, because if you're aware of the metaphor that's inside them, you won't use them in a way that contradicts that metaphor. So sometimes, I mean, you can tell I'm a very school marmish kind of teacher and, you know, scolder. I don't really go around scolding, but um, I'm aware of all these things. And, and I I did prize accuracy when I was teaching, uh, accuracy in word use. So that's what I have to say about word origins and, and etymologies. I still love love exploring them and learning them, and I st still am surprised all the time. As for syntax, I just admire what can be done. Obviously, that I was going to say anyway that even though I was writing so short when I was translating Proust, I delighted in his long, complex syntax and admired it tremendously and really enjoyed the challenge to me of reproducing that syntax without sacrificing it. I never cheated by breaking up the sentence. I wouldn't have dreamed of doing that. 
I tried to use the same punctuation. I think I certainly wouldn't have stuck in some semicolons to break up the sentence that way either. So the, that acrobatics, when it's done gracefully, is tremendously pleasing to me, even though I don't particularly write that way. Speaking of syntax, one book I would highly recommend to any writer is Virginia Tufts' Artful Sentence, uh, Syntax as Style. It's, it's an amazing compendium of all the different sentence structures possible and what they're useful for and illustrated by wonderful quotes that will introduce you to a number of different writers. And the effect of it is to make you pay such close attention to how a sentence is built and why and what effect that has on you as a reader. So it's it's absolutely top recommendation. Virginia Tufts, Artful Sentences. Well, your first love was music, not words. And I imagine your attention to syntax in the way that you write must be related in some way to your interest in music. And it makes me think of your endings and wondering if there's something about music that relates to your endings and how you choose how and when to end a story. When you talked to Ben Marcus for the Lannan Foundation, you mentioned that you've historically had trouble with endings, that you'd write good stories that ended with weak sentences and that you would then need to address the weakness that you identified at the end. And you usually describe good endings in terms of surprise, that you aim to end with the stronger, more surprising element in a story. And I don't think you mean a plot element necessarily, that you work hard on the very last words because sometimes that makes all the difference as to whether or not a story seems finished to you. It seems to be about sound, rhythm, and surprise more more than story itself and narrative. Um, it makes me think of Mary Ruffel quoting Roland Barthes, where she says, Roland Barthes suggests there are three ways to finish any piece of writing. The ending will have the last word, or the ending will be silent, or the ending will execute a pirouette and do something unexpectedly incongruent. Um, but returning to the three-line finished poem you have loved for 30 years that you read for us, where you say, how can a three-line poem that on the surface is quite simple and direct, three plain everyday statements continue in some way to surprise me each time I read it? I was hoping maybe you could talk more about the deliberations on ending a story and or how ending a story for you might create a sense of it never ending, of continuing to delight, to continue to return to it and finding the surprise. When I said that trouble with endings is, is sort of a constant, it's not really a constant. In other words, some stories, I mean, I think endings are very difficult anyway. They're difficult. They're often very difficult for a lot of people. And they have been difficult for me in that sense that a story is good all the way through, but then it's not good at the very end. So endings are harder than beginnings. You can start with almost with anything and make a good story, but you can't end it weakly 
which doesn't mean what, what I was thinking when you were asking the question was that every ending works a little differently. Or let's say there are, say, like Roland Barthes mentioned, three ways an ending can work. But let's say there are limited numbers, but there are different ways that an ending can work. So sometimes, like in my shortest one, the, the ending is part of the part of the whole thing, part of the point. So it do, it's not even a question. And then, say, with a longer story that has more of a plot to it, I think it it's good sometimes to introduce something new at the very end, or or when we talk about something unexpected, it can be unexpected but prepared for during the story. The way in a good film, there'll be something unexpected at the end, but it was prepared for, so it doesn't seem gratuitous. I can read one story. In, in, I'm looking at one particular example in which the very end was added much later. It's only four lines with the and a title. Great. Let's hear it. So the title is the title took, and you may not even like this one, but the title took a lot of work because again, it's got to set it up. So the title's very long, and the title is it's it's sort of like part of a conversation. The title is, but after all, this is the necessary first stage of his construction work. And then the piece is almost as long as the title, not much longer. Four lines. Please, Mr. Wasp, stop chewing on my bench while I'm out here trying to read. And then in parenthesis, or Mrs., so I love, I personally love the last line. And it it didn't come along till very late. Usually the, most of its life in this piece was just, it ends with while I'm out here trying to read. And what interested me was the sort of accidental companionship of the wasp chewing on the bench while someone's trying to read. The wasp makes her slightly nervous because he's a wasp. And then I realized I was calling him Mr. A friend of mine, I read it to or sent it to, didn't like Mr. He thought it was too cute. I thought of abandoning Mr., but I liked Mr. And then I realized, well, I don't know if it was a Mr. or a Mrs. And I liked the idea of Mrs. Wasp. So <laughs> I just ended it with in parenthesis, you know, sort of to myself or Mrs., and wasps do that. They chew on a piece of wood to make a kind of mash that they build their nest with. So uh, that's an example of, of the ending that was sort of okay, but this ending is better. Some endings, I was going to say, can trail off, you know, and they do trail off, but it's okay. It's sort of like life, you know. It just trails off sometimes, an interesting incident or even someone telling you a story will just sort of shrug and say, well, that's, you know, that's what if that's how it ended. You know, sort of that's okay too in certain stories. Well, you yourself have exposure to many languages, German immersion in Austria when you were quite young, later French, Latin, and Italian in the US, and several months in Argentina when you were in high school. In essays too, you say, 
by drawing on the resources of a language other than your own, you become more and more knowledgeable about your own language. And also you say, the more problems you encounter in the other language, the more ingenious you have to become in your own. Which makes me think back to your challenge of how short can I go and still retain a sense of meaning, which makes me wonder if your use of constraints like that bring something that you love from the world of translation into the world of writing, that it isn't just the pleasure of writing, but also the pleasure of solving problems, which is something that you've stated as, as part of your pleasure of translation, is the pleasure of writing and the pleasure of solving problems. That especially given your statement that the most important skill you can have as a translator is not expertise in a foreign language, but the ability to write well in your own language, that maybe these problems of translation and the problems that you choose for yourself in constraints are two different ways to improve oneself as a, as a writer. Is that a, is that a bad presumption to make that they serve a similar purpose? That sounds a little bit as if my aim is to improve as a writer, which it, it sort of, of course, it, it always was from the beginning in one sense. You know, how can I write something as good as my heroes? You're right that it definitely a constraint forces you to be more ingenious and, and to use the resources of your language more resourcefully. Did I repeat resource and resourcefully? That's another thing my family did is they would not let us speak in a in a poor way oh, if really? we repeated a, yeah if we repeated a word uh, inadvertently like that uh, clumsily they would often call us on it you know which makes you slightly self conscious but you get used to it your tendency in your own writing I mean I have taught writing for for many years I'm not teaching now but I I saw it over and over with students is. You can write fairly self-indulgently. With translation, you cannot, uh, you can't escape the the constraints of of the text that you're given. So that I think is very interesting. And I used to give the students. I guess what I preferred, we we did talk about their stories, uh, but I would I really enjoy giving them tight exercises to do and. You mentioned the Thomas Bernhardt's voice imitator, which, by the way, I discovered because I think it was O'Hare Airport in Chicago had a good bookstore right in the, on the main drag. And this was years and years ago, so I don't know if it's still there. But I was waiting between planes and thought, well, I'm going to look, you know, sometimes they have these impulses toward thoroughness that don't maybe last very long. But I said, I'm going to start with the A's in fiction and just look at every single spine. So I got to the B's and Bernhardt found this book, which amazed me for the same reason you said. I, I knew him as a novelist. I had no idea he wrote these, these very short stories. So I asked the class, you know, I gave them an example of three or four of them and asked them to, to do an imitation as their assignment of the syntax, you know, just say three sentences, sensational subject matter. I think his were always pretty sensational. 
they they most of them did a beautiful job. Some found it just terribly difficult. I th I think uh, nowadays we're kind of trained in pretty simple syntax, and it's very hard for people to. I mean, that was part of the difficulty of the Proust. Uh, I could do it, but it was it wouldn't be easy for everyone in these massive sentences to know what the main subject and the main verb was. Mm. <laughs> it's something that sounds pretty simple, but when it's all tangled up in, you know, subordinate clauses, people find it hard or impossible to, to say, oh, you know, he, it, the main sentence was just he walked down the road, you know, because there's so much hanging off in, in every way. So that was hard for, for, for the students. Some did it brilliantly. But um, I, I really like that kind of constraint. Could could we hear the story Egg, which I think is a nice one to hear for uh, some of the influences of translation? The word for egg in Dutch is I. In German, it is I. In Yiddish, A. In Old English, a. The word for egg in Norwegian is egg. In Icelandic, it is egg. In Faroese, egg. In Swedish, egg. In Danish, egg. In Old Norse, the word is egg. In Middle English, egg. In French, it is oof. In Scots Gaelic, it is ugh. Two American babies long ago are learning to speak. They are learning English. They have no choice. They are close to 18 months old. One is a week older than the other. Sometimes they fight over a toy. At other times, they play quietly by themselves in the same room. On the living room floor today, one baby sees a round white thing on the rug. He gets to his feet with some difficulty and toddles over to it. He says, Eck. At this, the other one looks up, interested, gets to his feet, also with some difficulty, toddles over to see, and says, Ack. They're learning the word. They've almost got it. It does not matter that the round white object is not an egg, but a ping pong ball. In time, they will learn this too. And listening to Lydia Davis read from her new collection of stories, Our Strangers. The story you read earlier, That Obnoxious Man, has the construction of itself as one of its topics. And, and the stories that are about language also feel in a way about themselves. And you have stories that, as, as we've talked about, comment on each other, like commentary on interesting personal vegetables. And all of these foreground the construction of the story in some way, which is double enhanced when a story is missing what we might expect from a story, which itself calls into question what we're reading, um, what choices you're making and why and how. So I'd like to spend a little time with sources and methods. But to begin here is a question for you from another, a, a writer and translator who you've written about also, the author of This Little Art and The Long Form, um, <laughs> the translator of Roland Barthes' lectures, Kate Briggs. Hello, David. Hello, Lydia. This is Kate speaking. Thank you so much for inviting me into the space of your conversation. 
Of the many, many questions I'd love to ask you about your work, Lydia, I've settled on a question about interest and what you find interesting and what your work makes interesting for us, your readers. I have in mind a story of yours from Can't and Won't, titled How I Read As Quickly As Possible Through My Back Issues of the TLS. And a passage from it, for example, reads, Interested in, colon, beer, East Prussia after World War II, philo-Semitism, not interested in, colon, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm also thinking of, I think, what was probably for me the most vital and transformative piece of writing advice I've ever received from your first collection of essays, which was to cultivate my interests and therefore, in a way, my character to hold to what I specifically, genuinely find interesting, however unlikely or untimely that might be, and to start work from there. So I wondered if you could expand a bit further on how your own interests work for you as generators for essays, stories and translations, and how you actively or unconsciously cultivate them. But I also wanted to ask whether it's ever felt hard for you to stay interested and also to stand by your interests. And if so, how and why and what happened? Another complicated question. It's, um, her book is terrific, by the way, this little yeah. art. I haven't read her new book. I think she has a pretty brand new book she out. She does. I'm looking forward to very much. So she's asking about interest. My problem is I'm interested in too many things um, and seriously interested in them, not passing interest. Very, very many, many things. I'll start from the TLS piece uh, because I've, I still do that. I still find myself looking through back issues of the TLS and being interested in this, that, and not that, and this and not that. So I, I had been doing that for quite a while because I would I would tear out the articles that interested me. And I still have bags, grocery bags of old issues upstairs and had to get through them somehow. So anyway, I began to see what I was doing and see the what I like also is the variety. I think I mentioned before the sort of disparate things coming together. And this happened, too, with the, say, table of contents of the TLS or the London Review or any other good journal. The, just the variety, you know, here's, an, here's a review of a book about South Pacific, and here's a review of a book about Canadian military history. And, and it's just all over the place, and all the different readers are going to read one or the other or both. And, you know, it's it's appeals to the variety of interests of the readers and the writers and the writers of the books they're reviewing. I love that variety. My own interests are very many and keep keep expanding, unfortunately. When she asked, when Kate asked if I lose interest, I don't usually lose interest in anything that I'm seriously interested in. So it it continues, but I add other things to it. You know, I order a lot of books through my secondhand bookstore, and I have a good sort of book searcher who who never minds uh, how often I write to her because she says it's part of her job. So I write asking for, and then I can see again the variety of interests. You know, 
this book club you've mentioned a couple of times, we're reading the poetry of John Clare, um, early 19th century poet. So I'm 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 asking her for for books of John Clare's writing. But but then I might try to remember what I've lately asked her for. But I do a lot of work on the climate committee in my village and keep discovering new issues. And the issue that I've discovered most recently is darkness. We don't have enough darkness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 it wasn't that I didn't realize that before, but it's, it's just become more pressing somehow that too much light kills off insects, alters their behavior. Uh, it's a serious problem. As a result, you see, I border on seeming a little crazy, but I now turn off all the lights in the house at night when it gets dark, except whatever room we're actually using. And if I go from room to room, I take a little lantern, a little little camping lantern with me, rather than keep turning on the lights of every room I go to, turning them off and on. If I don't have to stay in the room, this is really recent. so, So here's a new interest is darkness. I'm interested in lots of different things and, and and always interested in people. I mean, it seems to me that my stories are born of interest in language and how you use expressive language and in people and how people behave. So uh, I think, have I answered her question, do you I, think, or is there more to it that I forget? Well, let me extend Kate's question a little bit. I want to ask you how and why certain things that you do pay attention to may or may not appear in your work. Uh, Something that I think might ultimately bring us back to questions about plot and narrative and story, because there are many things you are very interested in in the world at large, which you've alluded to some already. You're very engaged with regards to social justice issues, primarily global climate apocalypse. Four or five years ago, when my show was in person, I reached out to you to see if you might be coming through Portland for your book at the time, and you said you had decided to stop flying for the rest of your life, and that it seemed particularly gratuitous, this custom that we have of flying all over the world to have conversations. You've tried to minimize buying new things. You try not to kill insects. You're pro-weeds. You're a vegetarian. All of which could be said to be attending to the non-human beings on the planet and mitigating our harm on an individual level. My favorite act of yours that feels like an act of social justice to me isn't related to climate change per se, except that you could call it an alternate form of travel that you want to attempt to translate at least one short work from each language that your own work has been translated into as a form of cultural exchange, which I really love. All of these things are part of your life, but not necessarily directly and overtly part of your fiction. For instance, you say in the Times Union newspaper that you are writing about climate issues for local newsletters, and you want to do even more of that, and that it's hard for you to focus on your own work when the climate emergency is staring us in the face, which sort of begs the question why you wouldn't make those climate issues part of your work. And I wondered if this had to do with your relationship to plot and story. It makes me think of 
Diane Williams again, who said about her own work, I don't want to know what I know. I'm curious about what I don't know. I want access to that mysterious center. I also think about how you're attracted to how Maurice Blanchot's work resists plot summary, where you describe one of his books unsatisfyingly as, in a house in the southern part of the country, a man goes from room to room being asked the question, are you writing now by another character who may or may not exist? Or how you often don't finish reading books that you love. The first time you read Swan's Way, you put it down after two-thirds. Same with Beckett's Malone Dies. These are books you were enthralled with, but you weren't interested in the impact of the whole work, but rather the technique and the, the approach. This is my long theory why it might be more rare that we will see, say, a current event pop up in your pieces, uh, for instance. But, but talk to us about why writing about climate issues, in your own words, takes away from your creative writing rather than immediately becoming part of your creative writing. I just meant takes away in terms of time. I mean, my, my preoccupation now is has been for some months completely with the climate committee that we have, even though we're tiny and, you know, we're not going to make a huge difference, but that's my response to feelings of apprehension, fear, panic, whatever, is to do something rather than just carry on the way I've been carrying on. So all my time and energy is slightly fanatically uh, spent on planting planting native garden sites around the village with my cohorts who are sort of equally dedicated and changing one asphalt parking lot, which we literally had been doing into a habitat, into a place with shrubs and perennials and and seeing the insects immediately come back. I mean, they're very responsive. I don't mean that the insect decline in the world is suddenly changed. But, you know, you plant a flower or you let a little clover grow where it wants to grow and a bee comes to it, you know, so they they find it. So that's very gratifying. So uh, it's just a matter of time. So I just don't feel I have the leisure and the calm to just sit here writing stories about other things. That may happen, maybe when the winter comes and there's much less I can do, although there's still things you can do in the winter, maybe then I will write more. I have several unfinished nonfiction projects that I'd like to finish. So that that's all I meant. And I don't know quite why I won't write a short story or a story about climate change. It just maybe seems too big, and what's the point? You know, we. You know, I I don't I don't quite know. I I I don't know why. I think I don't write directly about issues that that have, that affect me. Perhaps sometimes I do, but for example, there are quite a few insect stories in this book, and I'm very interested in insects. Partly because people are so resistant to them. I mean, certain people are not, and certain people are coming around to them. But 
in general, you, you know, you don't find an ant as lovable as a, as a little kitty cat. And, you know, part of our job in our little committee here is to begin to persuade people that we really need the insects and that some are not so nice and some are perfectly fine. But anyway, as a result of all that, I, I'm always looking at insects. So some of the stories reflect that, not sort of me beating a drum and saying we have to love ants, but just me talking about ants because I want to. And the same thing a few years ago, I was writing about the cows across the road from me. And I just loved looking at them. It was something not just a, they, they didn't just appeal to me as animals, but visually they were black against a green field or they were black against a tan field in the fall. And so they, they were just very beautiful to look at. But when I was done writing that and I, I had to reflect on it and realize that it reflected my caring about animal welfare. So I'm not writing a story that's very frontally about animal welfare. I'm just depicting the cows that I love to look at in a sympathetic way. So I think my interests come in indirectly. They're part of what I'm what I want to write about, but the, but not frontally. Well, while we're here talking about you in the world, talk to us about the choice to not release the book with Amazon and the considerations that went into that for you to figure out this new way along with Bookshop's new imprint being the inaugural title of a way to bypass the Amazon book model. I just don't know why it took me this long, frankly, <laughs> because I have known about Amazon's poor practices, um, poor business practices, poor treatment of workers, poor consideration of the environment. I've known about all that for, for many years and have not bought things through them for many years. So why did it take me so long to, to wake up and realize, you know, I'm allowing my book to be sold on Amazon? It, you know, we get so stuck in the sort of the way things are, the way things are done, that just seemed to be the way things were done. And then just at the time my second book of essays came out about two years ago, when it was too late to do anything, I realized I didn't like the fact that it was being sold by Amazon, that I didn't want to really contribute to the profits in the system that Amazon had set up. But it was too late, so then I began resolving. It took me a while to just, just to be very firm about wanting to avoid Amazon because I knew it would not necessarily be easy. And so it took me a few months even to to confide in my agent, who's been my agent since the 80s, who works wonderfully with me and is a very sympathetic person. You know, Finally, I ventured to say to her that I didn't want to sell it through Amazon. And she was completely on board. She doesn't like Amazon any more than I did. And she likes uh, changes and she likes her job to be exciting. So this was a new challenge. Okay, we're going to sell a book not through Amazon. How are we going to do that? So she went along and around and and talked to different different. I think we, you know, I can't remember the exact sequence, and, but but I think she obviously we went to my longtime publisher first for our Strauss and Giroux, and they did work on it for a while, trying to see if there was a way to avoid Amazon, and there wasn't. 
She tried different publishers who could not, and so they would be delighted to, but they could not. And some were afraid of repercussions from Amazon, which is which is a real fear in different areas, not just for the workers who work there. So she went to talk to Andy Hunter of Bookshop.org for advice. She knew where he stood with Amazon, and she talked to him just to feel him out about it and see see what his thoughts were. And that, and then, then you know what happened. He decided to be a publisher, at least for that one book. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, could we hear a slightly longer story? I was thinking letter to the U.S. Postal Service concerning a poster, which I think is one story where a lot of concerns enter into this story. Maybe exceptionally so, not a typical story in this regard for you. You know, when we talk about the stories that are about writing or about this or that, I think there's also my impulse to preach. You know, here's a, here's a way I can preach my <laughs> beliefs. <laughs> okay. So this is sort of a, a leftover, if you could say that, of the series of letters of complaint that were more prominent in Canton won't. There's a whole bunch. And then this was this, and maybe there's one other in here that were sort of came echoing afterwards. Letter to the U.S. Postal Service concerning a poster. Dear Postal Service, I was in my local post office the other day, and while I waited in line, I had time to examine a poster that was displayed there. It was large, about three feet by four feet and brightly colored, and it said in very large letters, people are good. The picture behind the words showed the inside of a very large cardboard carton with a few styrofoam peanuts in the bottom. The text of the poster concerned sending a pair of shoes packed in a large box full of styrofoam peanuts. I expected the message to be environmental, asking us to consider the waste involved before we overpackaged what we were sending. I have often been annoyed by receiving items unnecessarily packed in styrofoam peanuts. I try to collect the peanuts and put them into a plastic bag to take to my local packing and mailing service for reuse, since I don't like to throw something into the landfill that will never break down. And I am then further annoyed with what I imagine must be static electricity. The peanuts cling to my hands, my hair, and everything else nearby so that they are difficult to pick up and even more difficult since they weigh almost nothing to shake into the bag. I always enjoy reading posters that agree with a favorite position of my own, but as I read further, I was shocked to discover the message this poster, co-sponsored by an internet auction service, was conveying that sending a pair of shoes packed in an outsized bag filled with styrofoam peanuts was what you or your writers or their writers called a kind of love. This seems wrong to me for several reasons. As I understand it, people shipping items that have been purchased through an internet auction are strangers to the people buying these items and the transaction is purely commercial. If they pack the purchased item with great care, it is either because they are conscientious or because they want to ensure that their ratings remain high and they will be able to sell more items in the future. 
It is not out of any sort of love, which they could not feel for a stranger, unless they were truly enlightened, which most people are not. But worse than that misconception is the larger message that overpackaging is good, or at least merely a harmless, rather charming foible. To send an item like an unbreakable pair of shoes in such excessive packaging demonstrates no love for the environment, and without love for the environment, any other form of love is less admirable, in my opinion, though that is just an opinion. You are surely only encouraging the sort of wastefulness of which our society is already sufficiently guilty. As a government agency, you ought to be particularly concerned about this. Please reconsider the message you want to send. Yours sincerely. I'm listening to Lydia Davis read from her new collection. Our strangers. So one other thing your writing prompts a reader to wonder is about your sources. For instance, a father character reoccurs in this book with stories like Father Has Something to Tell Me, Claim to Fame, Karl Marx and My Father, Letter to the Father, Father Enters the Water, Worrying About Father's Arm, which makes one wonder if this is your father and also more generally the role of your life as a source for your fiction or, or not, you very generously go into various ways you construct your stories in Essays 1, the ways that your life may or may not end up in your fiction, your use of found materials like emails or dreams or an analytical reading of Bernhard's short pieces. Um, in thinking about sources and methods, we have a question for you from Diane Williams. Hi, Lydia. It's Diane Williams here. I'm very eager to read your new book. As you know, I'm a great admirer of your work. And at noon, we have been quite privileged to feature your fiction as well as excerpts from your journal. David asked me if I might ask you a question. My question, do you ever plumb your journal on behalf of your fiction? Never Rarely, often. That's very funny. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> I wish I could answer in person, but I know you're a pre-recorded voice, and I can't. Yes, I often do, but not always. There, are, or how shall I say this? I'll say it the another way around. There are many, 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 many pages of, of my journals which never were used in stories that never will be. There are many stories that did come directly out of the journals, being then intensively revised, most often expanded, revised, titled. So yes, it goes both ways. The journal has been a repository for all kinds of stray thoughts or overheard dialogue or pieces of recorded information from my life. And in the past, and I generally, my method would be just to just to write things down with no further intention at the moment. Then I might go back, as I still do now sometimes, go back through and say, oh, that is almost a story in itself, what I wrote down. Now that goes for the very short things, obviously, most, most often. It only needs a title, it needs a little more. 
For example, the egg story that I read before, the second part of it, which is all about the children, was an account in a journal from the time that the children were little. And maybe I only wrote it down because of the language aspect, but I think in those days, which was a long time ago, I tended to write more more fully in the journal, more descriptively, more more full accounts than I do now. But I changed the story in the sense that I added to it. I found the foreign versions of the word egg so interesting that I put that on the story as the first paragraph. So the, the narrative of the two children illustrates the learning of the word egg. But there's a sort of mock scholarly introductory paragraph explaining to the poor reader on the part of the teacher what the different words are for egg around the world. So that's a story that came from the journal but was expanded and modified. I'm looking at another one, William Cobbett and the Stranger. That was just something I read in William Cobbett's writing. And it appealed to me, so I wrote it out as a little story. Very simple, very direct. Let me ask you, in the spirit of Diane's question about sources also, I, I wondered if you ever have the impulse to write beyond the real and the humor of the real to the world of the fantastic, to have your husband waking up speaking a, a wrong language or with the body of a beetle, to have the ladybugs that you feed in one story say thank you or an entirely invented creature that doesn't exist ring the doorbell. How do you see the fantastic in relation to your writing and, and reading life? I mean, obviously you're a lover of Kafka, um, so you d you do find some appeal there. And why is it or isn't it a compelling place to write toward or from in your own writing? Well, I, I sort of puzzle over this, but more and more, I am I, I really find reality completely satisfying, and really don't want to deal in fantasy. And I and I have to keep wondering why. I'm less patient now with other people's fiction than I used to be. More interested in real accounts, you know, which are you know not always accurate. Therefore, they sort of border on on make-believe, you know, our memories are wonderfully inaccurate. In my earliest books, there, there were certainly, I think that in the first book, there were certainly fantastical stories breaking down. And I enjoyed them. I liked writing them then. Now I, I would not like writing them. And the difference, I guess, is just that I find I, I love reality. No, I don't love reality. That sounds terrible because our real world now is so <laughs> dreadfully frightening and terrible. But I relish the reality of the small interactions, the day the day to day. Saw a spider the other day that had such amazing colors on it. Big fat spider, but not of the dark, hairy, frightening kind, but just like a painted painted mask. I just find that more interesting than making up a fantastical creature. And I think it probably has to do with really valuing what we do have. I'm very aware of how fragile it is. So I really value what we 
do have and what does exist. And I don't feel any need to invent anything. And I don't particularly want to read other people's inventions. Mm. I, I don't I, I know that sounds repressive and I, I'm glad they exist. I'm you know, but I don't I'm happy reading accounts of reality and find them terrifically rewarding. Mm. Um they're all different, of course, you know. I'm reading, as I said, John Clare, the poet, also wrote an account in prose of his escape from an asylum. He was locked up in an asylum twice. And he, he escapes on foot 80 miles with nothing much to eat or drink. He gets one pint of ale once. He eats grass by the side of the road and says that it, it's a fairly satisfying meal. So, and, and he's writing in the early 19th century and his language is a different dialect. And so I just find that terrifically rewarding. It, it's a harrowing story and it's a sad, moving story. But that I'd rather read that than a piece of fantasy. You have many series of stories in this book that are really satisfying. And my favorite one is called Claim to Fame that are these <laughs> encounters with either minor or distant relatives or acquaintances of major people that are really great. And in that spirit, I wanted to ask you about one in the real world for you. Um, when I talked with Diane for the show, we talked briefly about her having Philip Roth as a writing teacher. And I know your only writing workshop was with Grace Paley. And I don't think of Roth and Williams or you and Paley having a ton of aesthetic and formal overlap, but I wondered if you could share any memories or anecdotes about that class with Paley or about her as a teacher of that class. Well, I'm, I'm really a disappointing anecdotalist for the most part. It would help if I had written an account, wouldn't that be nice of her class and her behavior, but I didn't. And just remember her sitting at the, at the head of the table, being not not flamboyant, not uh, not loud, not, and maybe that's why I don't remember better. You know, she she tended to be quieter and more modest in my memory, and so it, it, my main memory of that class is is one boy who was in it who who was very arrogant <laughs> and. Um, Clearly thought I was nothing at all, and until I read his story, and then he, I saw some dawning respect in his face. So that's that's you know the, the ridiculous memory. I would much rather have the memory of Grace Paley. She was a friend of my parents, by the way. So she did appear in our living room once, mm. but again, I I have no memory of talking to her, and maybe I didn't talk to her, and it's one of those unfortunate things that time does that, you know, if it had been 20 years later, I would have been just delighted and I wouldn't have pushed myself at her, but I would have just enjoyed absorbing her presence there and, and listened to her because she, she was one of, really became one of the writers I admired greatly. And it was not only her skill and her humanity as a writer, but her way of living in the world as a writer, that she, she wasn't out to glorify herself or push herself. She was doing what she cared about politically 
and putting herself in danger or wearing herself down politically as an activist, and then writing because she was compelled to write and writing the stories she felt compelled to write. But there seemed to be a very honest, straightforward relationship between her and her writing, her and her living. So I'm glad I took that workshop. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could remember more. Well, as we approach the end, I feel like we must mention that one of the main themes of the book is the passage of time and also aging with stories like the interests of old age, when we are dead and gone, wise old men, aging, or how he changed over time. And I'd love to go out with the story, New Things in My Life. But before we do, tell us what new things we can expect from you going forward, either as Lydia Davis projects out in the world, perhaps a direct action against an oil pipeline, for instance, or... Um, <laughs> Or in the world of words, what what's coming next for you? Either a translation or a collection, or or maybe your second novel, for instance. Well, it probably won't be my second novel, and I wish it were a piece of heroic activism. I'm not, you know, I think about it, but I think is that the most effective thing I can do? If it if it becomes the most effective, if it has makes a difference, I probably will do it, but. At the moment, I'm hoping everyone will rise up and yeah. protest, but at the moment, we're not there yet. It's As far as writing goes, it, I've accumulated these projects that interest me greatly that, that I would like to finish because it's it's not that I'm about to, you know, I still have some years left, but I, it's the feeling of, you know, now it's time to, to finish them one by one by one. And as I said before, they're they're all nonfiction. So the shortest that I can finish, it's something I've published parts of. It's converting a memoir by a great, 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 great uncle of mine into a poem. He wrote a, a memoir called Our Village, and it was somewhat rough as he wrote it, but he wrote it very beautifully, but rough in the sense that it's, you know, got repetitions and passages repeat and it's a little he starts over again and so on but it's very beautifully written and i've been converting it almost as is into a poem selecting and converting so i think it's very beautiful and i want to finish that mm -hmm. but it's mainly his writing then there's a, there's a, something i want to do about a, a 14th century shepherd i've done a lot of work on that already but the life of a, and this is the actual life of a shepherd that we know about because of his testimony in, in a, a religious inquisition. Um, so I want to do something with that. And then the, the third is another ancestor who was a sea captain, left a diary. And what I started doing was, he was in the 1850s or 60s, say he was a sea captain. What I what I've started doing and probably still will want to do, and it's very hard to get the form of some of these things, is to reproduce his diary as it is, and then have commentary on it, which I take from two years oh Richard Henry Dana Jr., two years before the mass. Do you know that book? I don't. It used to be such a classic. It was very influential to Melville. Melville read it in the 1840s. And it made him want to go to sea. 
it's account of a of really a Harvard undergraduate who has to go is to do something for his health. So he goes to sea as a as an able seaman, as just an ordinary seaman, and he writes an account of it for people on land, for people on land to know what the life of a seaman is all about, a sailor. And it's a terrific book. And it was so popular that it, for a while you used to see it at every library sale. Every library sale had a copy or two. And it's a wonderful book. So I'm going to use Richard Hayne and Henry Dana's book as an explanation for some things that my ancestor says about sea shanties that wow. they're singing or something. And then I'll have my own voice in there somewhere too. But you can see these are terribly complicated projects. Wonderful though. Wonderful projects. Well, let's go out with um with new things in my life. New things in my life. It takes me so long to get used to new things in my life that when I am tired, I call my husband by the name of that other husband I used to have, although it was a long time ago by now. And this new son by the name of that first son I had, who was in my life for 10 long years before this one came. But it is worse than that, since when I am even more tired, I remember only the other husband and the first son. When I married that other husband, I was not yet used to being a girl of 18, but thought I was even younger, maybe 12, and that he was my older brother. And I teased him like a little sister until he swatted me away. And then when my first son was born, I was not yet used to being a woman of 29 and thought I was younger, maybe a girl of 18, still a child herself, really, and not old enough to be a good mother. Now I look at a young woman standing here before me with her mother, and I think that her mother could be my mother, too. She could be our shared mother, because I think I'm still a young woman, though I'm the same age as that mother. It may take me a long time to learn that I am the same age as that mother is now, but I will be still older by then and will have learned the wrong thing. I look at another woman of middle age, a motherly woman, and I think she might be my mother, although I am nearly her age myself. But if I see that she cannot be my mother after all, I lose not only this woman as a mother, who might have been my mother now, but also my own mother, as she was at that age. If I continue to look at motherly women of this age, thinking they might be my mother and wishing they might be my mother, that they might come into or back into my life to take care of me, I continue to forget that I am now even older than they are. I cannot get used to the disappearance of my mother or of my father either, who were in charge of things and took care of things in their own way, and who took care of me and of all of us, who made plans and changed them, who lost their way in the car and found it again, who lost their keys to the house, to the car, and to the hotel room and found them again. I cannot get used to the disappearance of that beautiful older sister pursued by neatly dressed college men, or to the disappearance of that high school student older brother with his Latin grammar and his touch typing manual and his cello. Sometimes I forget I am a woman at all, and at these times I am not inside this woman's body with its many signs of age, but inside a smaller body, a body half this size, a body with no gender, or not much, a body that only wants to go out into the sunlit backyard and climb the apple tree. 
Thank you so much, Lydia. It was a real pleasure to spend these couple hours together. Thank you. I enjoyed it. We're talking today to Lydia Davis, the author most recently of Our Strangers. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Lydia contributes a discussion of the Swiss writer Peter Bichsel, what attracts her to read him and translate him. And then she reads for us a story of his that Lydia herself translated. This joins supplemental readings by many of our past guests, long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards including the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team. Elizabeth Tomeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, It's Appetit Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.